Hi, I'm Libby Trickett. This is All That Glitters, a podcast where I sit down with the world's best retired athletes and explore the transition from the bright lights of competition to the real world. Today's guest is triple Olympic gold medalist Grant Hackett. A changing of the guard. He's left the legend of his weight. He hasn't lost since 1997. Hackett in now. Gold to Australia. Grant Hackett wins. Yeah, so how are you? Like, how how is work? You're a very busy, very important CEO. How is yeah. life? Yeah, good. Are we kicking off now? Just well, to double check. Yes. Do you want to? Yeah, yep. is that okay? Okay, cool. All right. Well, I'll, I'll give my proper answers then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> my, not, my podcast not, <laughs> not the real ones. <laughs> the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the ones where I don't dump F-bombs. Yeah, like that. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> I do that in this podcast, so I apologize in advance. No, that's all right. You go, you go for it. Um, life. Yeah, no, life's actually um, really, really good, to be honest. So, yeah, I mean... Having um, the role that I've got right now just immerses me in something that I'm really passionate about, sort of associated deep sense of purpose like I did when I was swimming and, you know, a group of great people around me that are very bright, very driven. You know, we have that collective goal. So it kind of reminds me a lot of sport, but obviously a very different environment. So, yeah, no, life's life's good and family life's good, you know, beautiful wife, second time around. Mm. So, you know, we've got a little boy who's two years old now, so that's been a heap of fun. And obviously, along with the twins that are now twelve, which is just wow. like starting high school this year, which is pretty pretty crazy. Um, which makes reiterates to me enjoying the time with the two year old, just because that goes so quick. The mm. first four years take forever, and then after that, it's like you know light speed. So. Yeah, no, no, no complaints from my end. I have to say, I'm totally jealous that your little boy is Edward because um, I went for our middle girl. My favorite boy's name was Edward, and yeah. I thought for sure she was going to be a boy. So I was like, "Cool, <laughs> we're going to have a cute little teddy. It's going to be really sweet." And then she came yeah. out a girl. I'm like, "Oh, well, what do I do?" Uh-huh. <laughs> so we repurposed wow. it and went with Edwina. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, let's see. Hey, you got to be flexible on your approach sometimes. You do. That, that works. It's it's quite funny when you get a name and you have this expectation, and then all of a sudden it comes out and it's completely different. You're like, okay, we've got to we've got to mold this yes. and reshape it to, to make it work still. Exactly. But um, yeah, no, it's it's funny. I mean, you're three girls, aren't you? So that's, yes. Uh, that's that's full on. And it what, is. what age is yours? So uh, Poppy is six and a half. Eddie is almost four, and Bronte is just two. So. Okay, so you're entering school now, so that's yes. kind of ho- hopefully freeing up life a little bit. Yeah, it does. It makes a <laughs> massive difference. But then that brings about all those other things, right? Like it's, you know, after school yep. commitments, it's homework, mm. it's, yeah, school it, time. It is. <laughs> it's totally different. As, as someone said to me, little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems. Yes, so I know. I that's, that's what's that's pretty true. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the only good thing, the only good, good part really is the fact that the dependency rate drops off. Mm. Like you don't have this dependency rate where it's like 100% of the time that you're actually reliant on seeing where they're going, making sure that they're not killing themselves the whole yes. time and, you know, hurting themselves. So, yeah, so that's probably the nice part. That actually kind of leads me... A little bit. It's kind of a segue into this next part because when I was researching you, because I obviously I know a lot about you. I've been on multiple teams with you. We, we, we spent many years on a team together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just a reminder. Um, we travelled the world several times, but anyway. <laughs> I had to remind myself of those things. But you know what is hilarious is that my my daughter Poppy was born in 2015 and so I was, uh, I was researching you today and I was like – Oh my god! Like you made a comeback in 2015. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
I know. I, I had know. no idea. It's like this. There's this missing moment in my life, which is obviously newborn sleep deprivation. I'm forgiving yeah. myself, but I was really quite annoyed that I didn't even register that you did. And you made an Australian team. You went to the World Championships in 2015. Like it's yeah, amazing. It kind of bizarre because it, there was no desire whatsoever for a comeback. Like I was afraid of the bathtub once I finished swimming <laughs> after 08 because. You know, being a distance athlete, the amount of laps and training that you have to do. And, and you know, I spent 12, 13 years on the national team. So kind of enough was enough. But it was going through the very difficult situation of a divorce and everything being so public and then going, look, I need to be back close to my family. So I went back to the Gold Coast. And then I guess a part of that journey was getting fit again. Mm. And I thought, well, what better way to get fit again than do a bit of gym work and maybe go down the pool and see the guys because it's just such a nice, cohesive team environment when you're in that training squad. Mm. And so I went down there, I spoke to Dennis, and I said, look, I don't want to disrupt anyone, but would I be able to come down here and do a few laps with the guys every now and again? He's like, yeah, sure, no worries. And then, you know, I had probably five 2K swims in the first week, and then I kind of built up, um, you know, I think I I dived at 53 in the first week in in a pair of DTs, and I was... (laughs) I was like, wow, I can still kind of do this. And I literally had not swum in six, seven years. Like I hadn't done anything. Wow. I've been for probably maybe three or four swims, uh, no, no joke. I'd swum out in the surf and gone surfing a lot, but, mm. but that was kind of it. That was my water work. But, yeah, and then like this journey of like, okay, I can kind of do this. And then I was enjoying the training. I was enjoying the camaraderie between all the squad members. And then I was like, oh, maybe, maybe I'll just, you know, do a race. Mm. And then trials was six months away and so I thought oh maybe I'll go to trials and just see how I go and I never thought in a million years I was age 34 almost 35 when I was going onto that team and yeah I kind of made the the four by two I finished third at nationals in the 400 meter freestyle behind then the Olympic champion I guess the next year with Matt Horton so I was pretty I was pretty overwhelmed by the result actually and I kind of I wish I had a lot of pressure to go to Olympic trials the next year, but I didn't actually want to, if I Mm. really am honest with myself. I wanted to stop there because I was like, I didn't mean to do this. I didn't mean to do a comeback, but then the comeback took a life of its own as as it does when, and you know what it's like when expectation comes in for us. It's, it's hard. You kind of get carried with it. And I thought I was a bit more mature um, at that stage in life to probably not focus on those things, but, and I didn't for a long time, you know, when people knew that I was back in the water and training, but eventually um, you kind of get sucked into it a little bit, which I, I wish I didn't. I kind of got to that point. I almost wish I didn't even go to the world champs because right. I, I felt like I'd accomplished so much more than what I anticipated to get that fit again and get back on the team at that stage in life. And yeah, I think I was the oldest member to ever make a national team. So it was a, it was a huge achievement for me at a personal level. Yeah, it's a massive achievement because most swimmers, you know, retire late 20s, maybe early 30s, but certainly mm. is kind of unheard of at 35 years old. Yeah. Like I'm 37 now and I'm like, wow, Hacky did it. Maybe yeah. I can now. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the thing is, like, you, you see athletes getting older, right, mm. because the recovery and the physio and the training is just so much better and so much more tailored for the individual. Mm. We used to just have this blanket approach where you do these sessions, it has to work for everybody, I don't care what your strengths and weaknesses are, where that school of thought has kind of evolved over time. And, you know, I only got to see Tom Brady, who's like 100 years old, and he can play <laughs> NFL. Like, how can you play that sport at you know basically mid 40s like he is to the level that he is i mean i know all the experience and skill that it takes for his position but 
That's phenomenal. And I, mm. and I think even in our sport now, we're seeing a lot of people creep into, you know, early 30s, even seeing Kate Campbell announce that she wants to go to a fifth Olympics. I was just like, me- yeah, going to mention that because she'll be, she'll be about, uh, I think, 32, mm. 33 by that stage. So yeah. it's amazing. Yeah, it, it is. And it was unheard of throughout our era. I was like, if you made it to late 20s or three Olympic Games, it was like no one had ever really done that, mm. um, you know, sort of. Um, on too many occasions. So that was kind of a phenomenal, you know, feat within itself. But you see people becoming more and more professional within the sport and the sport itself becoming more professional. And I think that promotes a bit more longevity. Yeah. Well, I remember I had a distinct memory of um, watching Susie O'Neill at the 2000 Olympics and knowing that she was 27 and just being like, Susie, just move on with your life. Like you're yeah. old you're now. You're so ancient now. You're so ancient. Yeah. And then I got to 27 and I'm like, oh, God, I'm not actually that old. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. This is this is not old. This no. is this. I feel I feel like I'm 18 still. So. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's so funny life and and the different perspective that you have over time. So do you feel like that that comeback was obviously there's a lot of high profile stuff that you went through mm. in the media, a lot of difficulty personally that you went through. Do yeah. you feel like that comeback was healing to? move through it, all of those challenges? It was to an extent, I have to say. So when I was doing it for myself, it was really healing mm. because I was enjoying swimming. I was back to what I liked and loved about swimming, you know, about getting faster and fitter and moving through the water in a certain way and feeling that skill become more and more refined. And that's that's what I did the sport for, was just to become better intrinsically, not for everybody else. And so Whilst I was going through that part of the process of that comeback, it was it was massively healing, and mm. I and I enjoyed it, and I really loved it. Once it became, I don't know, I hate to say this because I don't want to put blame on anything or anybody, but once it got taken away from me, mm. and once it got stripped from me, and it became a big high profile comeback, and this, that, and the other, which a lot of people think you do that stuff for, right? Like you've got some sort of relevance deprivation. Yes. I was like, yes. that was the last thing it was about. <laughs> that like, was pay attention to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And and that was the thing that actually started, I didn't enjoy it as much. I wasn't enjoying the training as much. I wasn't enjoying the expectation that I, I put a huge amount of expectation on myself and I'm completely comfortable with that. I love that. I'm, I'm good under that sort of pressure. But then when I started getting all these outside pressures and it was some form of redemption, I didn't really enjoy that. I was like, no, I'm actually not doing it for, for everybody else. I'm doing this for myself. So mm. I think it definitely, um, it was part of the healing process, but then, you know, it's like something you get too much of something and becomes counterproductive or counterintuitive in a way. And I think that kind of hit that tipping point. And that's probably why I referred to it at the start of this discussion. That's why I should have stopped at a certain point mm. when I knew that inflection point had come about and gone, I've got what I needed out of this. Yes. Time for me to move on into another area of life that I'll, I'll get the same thing. Because I read um, in one of the articles about um, Olympic trials is that you, you didn't make the final in the 200 and you placed 11th and you were like, I'm actually more content and more happy with finishing here than I was in Beijing after winning a silver medal in the 1500. What, yeah. what did that feel like? Because, you know, in Beijing there's, there was so much pressure on you to do the three-peat to be the first mm. person to win consecutive 1500 gold medals. What did that feel like when obviously that didn't come off and you kind of were like, oh, okay, well, that's, that's it then? <laughs> yeah, it's it, that, that particular race and moment in life, I've learned something about myself as I'll never get over it. I'll never get over it. I'll learn to live with it. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> I and feel you've got to live with it. <laughs> 
And we and it's funny, I, I lost that race internationally at every level twice in 12 years. Mm. And and I sit here and I think about that one. And I think about what could have been even when I see highlight reels of it, because I, I don't think I've actually ever watched the full race. Um, and I see it, I'm like, can I change that result? Can that be different? So, look, I'll, I'll be completely transparent. It, it hurts. It's. Mm. I actually look at that silver medal and I remind myself, never feel like that again, because I was actually the fastest athlete at those Olympics, but I wasn't the fastest person at that particular point in time at those Olympics. You know, I went much faster than the, the winner in the heat. I finished with the Olympic record, but not with the Olympic gold medal. So... Mm. It, it was a real disappointment and I, and I ch- changed my race strategy. Instead of going out hard and breaking the field, I thought I'm going to race a little bit more conservatively. I know I've got more speed than these guys because I did better in the shorter events and part of the 4 by 2 relay and I thought I'd just out-gun them at the end. And we were so far ahead in the heats, Yuri Prilikov and Ryan Cochran and either, either side of me, that I just didn't think anybody else was going to come into play in the mm. final. And then when I broke them and I saw Maluli out in lane seven, I was like, oh, surely we're lapping someone. It was actually my first thought. I thought really? we were lapping someone. And I was like, this is not state titles. You don't lap people at the Olympics. <laughs> and, and I kind of, you know, went to chase him and and got really close you know basically half a second and and i lost and and that's the reality and i've i guess i've i've i will carry that through my life because i feel like it's a failure i could have controlled a lot better but i've accepted it i realize i have to live above that disappointment Mm. but i'm never going to be happy or satisfied about it i'm never going to be content and i'm only if if i said i was and i've moved on i would be lying Mm. because i look at that silver medal and i feel the same emotion every time so, but I've, I've I've moved on in life, you know what I mean. I'm not going to hold a grudge and be angry about it, but I accept the fact that it's a disappointment I can't change. But I'm never going to be happy about it, and I'm always going to think, what should I have done differently? And I'm always going to take those lessons into everything I do now, which is something that I do do. I love that. I haven't. Um, well, because I, I I had a very similar experience in Beijing. I was world record holder leading into the hundred freestyle. And the 50 freestyle and, you know, completely fucked up my race in the semifinal. Ended up only just qualifying because someone got disqualified. Um, yeah. I was out in lane eight and my first yeah, thought was... you were on the outside. Yeah. Right. And yeah. My, fir- my first thought after just making it is like, I'm going to be the next Kieran Perkins. I'm going to win <laughs> from lane eight and yeah. it's going to be this amazing story. That <laughs> you do, you fantasize. Yes. Like you're like, I'm going to manifest this thing and just yeah. bring it to life. Yeah. yeah, but then, you know, again, because of emotions and whatever, mm. things happen. And then I, yeah, completely stuffed up my race in the final, went out way too hard and lost by yeah. 0.04 of a second. And you just... Yeah, you were, you were out there so quick. So fast. That but not yeah. efficient either. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's fast well, and there's efficient. <laughs> yeah, well, it was quite funny because obviously Eamon finished second in the men's 100-meter yes. freestyle as well, and he was so funny because I remember debriefing with him afterwards because we were both naturally disappointed. We all, we all want to win. That's mm. what we're there for. Our definition of success and failure is silver, gold. You yeah. know what I mean? Failure, success, exactly. and that's it. Um, and he was like, you know, I changed my race strategy too. He's like, I went out in the first 50 a little bit slower because he knew Alan Bernard would be quite fast in his back end. Mm. And he goes, just to give myself a, a bit of back end, but he goes, I was still stuffed at the 50 anyway, so I might as well just have gone out as hard as I could, <laughs> which is something, you know, Eamon would absolutely say. But mm. it, it is funny, like, you think we're so disciplined, we never miss a beat, we've gone through this race a million times, but at that level, 
you're only making minor mistakes, right? Mm. Like these, these sound huge in this conversation, but they're minor, minor mistakes, but they cost you big time because the margin for error is non-existent. I, th- mm. I think I've got, it's about, it's my three Olympic silver medals are over 2,400 meters worth of distance. And it's wow. less than a second between all three of them being gold. So you go like, I can't afford to stuff up at that level. That's just mm. the nature of the game. So that's why it's process, 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 right? Just focusing on, okay, I've committed to this form of execution, which suits my race style and just focusing on doing that rather than the outcome the whole time, which is so easy to say, but it's a very difficult thing to do when this is your dream. Yeah. Well, I, and I guess like from my perspective, how do you move through that disappointment, especially with, when that was, that was your final race of competition, right? Like mm. last, mm. Uh, you retired after that before you come back in 2015, which wasn't a comeback, but you know, it was, that was the end of your swimming career and you'd obviously yeah. been aiming to do the three-peat, which you actually, yeah. you had stopped Kieran Perkins doing. <laughs> doing yeah. I know, talk about karma. <laughs> Took eight years to come around, but it got me. Yeah, well, because because <laughs> I, I actually wrote down in um in my notes one of the one one of my first memories of you because I used to train with Kieran Perkins, and yeah. I remember um in the lead up to two thousand and at the two thousand Olympics seeing these big posters saying Perkins can't hack it, and I just remember just hating you because I was like screw yeah, that Kieran's going for three gold let's like let's go Kieran. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think most of the country actually felt like that at the time, to be totally honest. Yeah. It was like boy, you shot the hemi. So. What, what was that like for you, that experience? Oh, it, it was really, it was difficult emotionally because I was only like, I was 19 at the trials and turned 20 for the Olympics. But at the Olympic trials, they were all chanting Perkins, Perkins. <laughs> I was like, well, I've won this event four years straight, like for the country, like surely give me something here. For like, people. ouch, so, guys. And and but what I noticed at the Olympics, it was Aussie, Aussie. You know, mm. it was it was it was both of us. Like they didn't actually separate us there, which really made me feel a lot better about it. But one thing that really upset me was there was a journalist who actually wrote that I might as well be an American because everyone will be cheering for Kieran. So for my own oh, country, yeah. and that that was heartbreaking because I'm such I'm so patriotic towards my country. I've been competing for years. I'd always represented the country well and made the national anthem play on you know foreign soil many many times, and I just that that really hurt. And particularly when I've got a grandfather that fought the Kokoda Trail and mm. all that, I've got this really rich history, and I've got someone telling me that I miles will be American. I was like, who do you think you are to state that about me? Yeah. So and on and and that and. Subsequently, it was probably one of the very few times that a journalist actually apologised, which mm. which was quite nice. But yeah, that was there was a lot of that in the build up um, to it. But then afterwards, um, to be able to overcome all of that, because as you know, Libby, like the Olympics is half physical, half emotional mm. and mental. So getting there and being able to control your emotions and not be overwhelmed, not be overwhelmed by the dining hall and watching the dream team walk in, you know, Sydney 2000 Olympics, Muhammad Ali walked past. Like it's a crazy environment and it's, it's a dream. It's a lifelong dream to get there. And when you're one of the few athletes that have an opportunity to win, like it can even get more on your psychology because there's, there's more like sort of resting on what you're about to do. And so I think, um, you know, for me as a young athlete to overcome that was was something I was super proud of. And then on the other side of it, to get the gold medal, but to go up against 
this guy was my hero. I had yeah. his times up on my wall that I tried to beat every single year. And he was a god within not just you know our sport, but Australian sport full stop. So it was pretty awesome to have the opportunity to race beside him at a home Olympics and then sing the national anthem with him mm. up on the medal dies. So yeah, it's funny. We always had a bit of a frosty relationship back then. Well, I didn't want to be. He was more caring towards me <laughs> because I looked up to him. But, uh, you know, he's a hero and then he's burning me. And I'm like, oh, come on, mate. Like, so uh, I love you. You know, you're awesome. <laughs> but uh, but it was very different. But now, you know, we, we're good friends and, you know, we, we see the world in many respects in a very similar way. And both in financial services. Uh, well, he's, he's not now. He's moving into more of a um, government role. But, um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's been an interesting journey. But going up against him then was a big, big challenge. Yeah, because I actually I interviewed Jody Henry recently and, it, it's funny because as you move on with life, you realize how many things you have in common and how like quite alike you actually are as people. But when you're competing, you're like, I can't talk to you because I don't want to yeah. like you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If I like you, like this might make it harder. It's so harder to beat you. It was really funny because I, I probably had that with Kieran in the sense that he was so much older than me. Mm. Like you said, like Susie was 27, Kieran was 27 um, in Sydney as well. And so I thought he was like kind of ancient and we we're a couple of generations within the sport apart. But with Ian, with Thorpey, I, I didn't have that because we came through together. We were mm. like age groupers and then we kind of made our first team together and then everyone was kind of looking at us together and we just kind of stuck together because there was this sort of craziness in the world around us. So it's really funny. We have this like really deep rivalry in the water where, you know, I could break a world record, but he could break it by a little bit further and I'd finish second. So that, that happened to me a few times. Um, but then outside of the pool, we could be really close mates because I think we could relate so much. But I think mm. that was just by design more than anything else. Well, how did you find that though? Like, because it must be pretty frustrating to kind of break a world record, but come second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That must teach you some life yeah. lessons. <laughs> Well, it, it probably happens once in your career if you're really unlucky, but I think it happened to me like about four times throughout the course of my career. So, you know, like having someone like him there, I, I, people think, oh, is that a curse because you would have had all these gold medals in the shorter events and would have had that full spectrum the, the whole time from the 200 up to the, the 1500. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, well, would my 1500 been as good if I didn't have Ian pushing me down in some of those shorter events? So, True. He might have actually got me up to a, a standard that I didn't know I could achieve. So, Such a good perspective. Yeah, so it's, it's a, yeah, it's a blessing and a curse, but, like, to go through an era and, you know, where you've got Kieran Perkins and then you've got Ian Thorpe and then you've got Michael Phelps. I was like, these guys are all sort of my rivals in various events. It's It was kind of, you know, it's pr pretty intimidating when you reflect on it, but I think it definitely, you know, brought me up as an athlete. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've always felt sorry for Laszlo Che because he, he obviously... <laughs> The guy's got more silver medals than you can put stick out, doesn't he? He even tied with three other, two other people for one. So it's like you can't get away from silver, dude. <laughs> Poor guy. And I think he kept swimming longer because he just was like, i got to try and yeah. get the gold medal. Yeah, my time will come. It will come. So no, it won't. You've just got to, keep, you've got to tie for silver now. If you haven't got enough, we're going to give it to you with other people. So, like... <laughs> I know, like he's one of the greats of swimming. Like what he yes. did and what he achieved is is phenomenal. But yeah, to go up against the competitors that he has with the likes of Phelps and Lochte and all those sorts of people, like it's just a it's a nightmare. Yeah, it just seems really unfair. <laughs> yeah. So why does this person have to be in all my races? Yes, exactly right, <laughs> exactly right. Um, so you were you were team captain on the Australian team for a number of years, and you kind of always had that very. Um, 
that leadership presence, you know, you, you kind of really were a stalwart of the team. Obviously, you performed consistently over so many years in, in, in the Australian swimming team. Did you always feel like you would go into some sort of leadership roles after swimming? Like when you decided to hang up the goggles in 2008, did you go, cool, I want to be CEO one day. That's what I want to do. I, it's it's really funny because I think you can get two types of leaders in life from what I've seen. One, you can get a leader who's kind of just there for themselves because they want the title and they're probably capable and good enough and they care about the title so much they'll do the right things. Or you, you've got a person that actually just enjoys people seeing doing well and wants an element of control and direction to be able to, you know, see what they can achieve. And, and I like to think I'm the latter. Um, you know, I don't really care about titles. I actually don't care at all. I just want the job to be done, to be totally frank, and I, mm. want, I don't want to do it the right way. Um, I always say to my, my team here, I'm always like, well, if we win, we're, we're an ambitious bunch. We share that same psychology, but we have to win the right way. Where in sport, you know, you can win the right way or you can take drugs. You know, mm. you can have yeah. performance-enhancing drugs and win the, win the wrong way. So there's a right and wrong way of winning, in my, my view, whether it's in sport or business. The, the team leadership, it, it kind of just progressed to that. I always cared about the team so much. I genuinely cared about seeing people do well. I never felt I was jealous of anybody else's performance, even when Ian would kick my backside. I, mm. I just respected what he did and what he was achieving and how much he was improving the races that we were entering in. And, you know, because it's easy. Like, you always feel jealous for a second when someone beats you and you wanted it so bad. But, you know, I, I genuinely felt happy to see people work so hard and achieve what they had. And I, I loved what our team was doing. Like in 2001, when we beat the US for the mm. first time at the World Championships um, collectively was a phenomenal feeling. And, and I I really enjoyed being a part of that. And so I think for me, I kind of gravitated into that role even before I formally got it because I was always sort of pushed forward to doing things. I helped set up the Australia Swimmers Association back in 2001 and really drove that because I wanted to see a stronger voice for the swimmers. So for me, it was just all about trying to improve things. And so I naturally went into that role. So when I, I finished up, it's really interesting because in your sport, you're kind of a, a global CEO. You're one of the few people that have won for that, that long and achieved what you have. Mm. But then I literally finished my sport being in that kind of position to going in Monday morning, not being the best at the table on Collins Street when I, yeah. I had a job at Westpac. <laughs> and it was like, all right, this is the bottom rung. Here we are. Mm. I don't know anything. And and as how soon did as that I, feel? How did that feel? Because like, like that's a um, massive thing. I, I had that experience as well. You like, I was the best in the world and <laughs> now I'm just a shit kicker. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, no yeah. That's idea. literally what it was like. Like I'm not the best at the table. I, I had that that moment. And then I, I made a decision pretty early on in the piece where I thought to myself, because I saw – you know, it was really hard, actually. I was on that team, and I don't know if you've experienced this as well, but we had kind of 41, 42 athletes replicated with about 35 or 36 support staff. Everyone in that sort of, you know, 80 or people were all trying to be the best in the world at what they were doing. Mm. Like everyone was doing everything they could to be the best physio or masseuse to help drive performance and outcome. Every athlete was training their backside off to become number one and going through that whole emotional roller coaster to get there and injury, illness, overcome everything. And then you go into the workforce and it's not the same sort of high performance environment. Like it is like mediocre is okay. I'm here to pay my mortgage. I'm here to leave <laughs> yes. it. You know, I, you know, I'll call that person Levi's because I'll leave at 501. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's like when the bell goes, it's like school, people are gone. And I was, I actually made a decision early on in my, I guess my corporate career where I thought I can either try, I can either conform to that 
type of culture and that bit of mediocrity that, that that's in there, or I can actually try and get some people up to a standard mm. that I think is achievable and desirable and fun. Like I enjoy driving performance and pushing yourself to get there. And, and I actually made that decision. I, I'm not in a position yet to be able to drive that out of people because mm. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, but I'm going to get myself there. And I think that was the decision at that time where I didn't think CEO or whatever, but I knew I wanted to be in a people leader position where I wanted to help people. I wanted to try and see people, what I could see in them, what they couldn't see in themselves and let people see that vision and, and get them up and surprise themselves. And and it's amazing the culture and the confidence that it actually creates. Mm. And if you you win in the right respect, um, things seem to come to you. And, I, and that's why I guess I found myself in this position today running a, a listed company is, and, you know, we're, we're number one in our space. It's it's only because I, I enjoy seeing people do well and I'm really performance driven. So mm. you kind of combine those two very simple things together um, and you live it and breathe it every day and the consistency that we have to do to be good, it kind of delivers an outcome. So I, I didn't make that decision directly in my head, I want to be a CEO, but it kind of came to me through what I wanted to achieve in life and a mm. purpose and, and help people with. And, and then it just sort of, yeah, took a took a life of its own, I guess you could say. Yeah, it kind of evolves over time. Mm. But did when you were first in that sort of space and you were just, you know, just a pleb on the table, just <laughs> trying to make your mark, did, yep. did you find it frustrating to be in that environment where people are like, eh, I'm not going to try too hard. I'm just going to do the bare minimum. I'm not actually aiming for anything. And and how did you actually bring people into that space? Because a lot of people are very resistant to trying to, you know, improve and oh, yeah. work hard and do all those things. It It's very challenging because you do recognise that there's, there's some personalities which are never going to make that sort of shift mm. and they're not – necessarily going to be in roles that really if the organization in totality and i'm not saying i run that like i do this particular space but in other roles that i've had you sort of recognize that within that role they're really good and they're not overly ambitious and, and they're, they're, they're helpful mm. so you kind of got to know i don't need performance to the extent in that particular position versus this one over here so you've got to know your key positions and the people that are actually going to drive I guess the growth and the outcome that you're looking for and make sure that those are the right people with the right sort of um, I guess cultural aspects to to the way in which they're conducting themselves and driving their team. So it's really important to identify the difference between the two. Did I get frustrated? Absolutely. I, I do today. I get frustrated when I don't see performance standards being met. I don't see the right attitude along with the performance standard as well. Like it does. It, it hurts me personally. It actually mm. hurts my soul. So because I'm such a, a deep believer in that. And don't get me wrong, like it's, I don't get it right every day by any means. I'm always trying to improve and grow and get smarter people than me around the table so I can learn and grow off them. Um, and I'm always trying to find a way, how can I actually get more out of that person? How can I make them feel more supportive? Because they do more, it reflects well on obviously everyone too. So, because it is always a team effort. But um, I just made the determination that, I'm going to get myself a, into a position when I was feeling like that early on in my, my corporate career where I can have an impact, mm. where I can actually shift the culture, where I can turn the dial a little bit. And so what I did, my thought process, and this is no word of a, of a, of a lie, I went back to, because the problem with athletes when they retire, they think they're going to retire in the position they're in and that doesn't happen. You've got to eat humble pie, go back to the start and go Park the all ego. the crap that you did early in your early years of your swimming career. 
And when I was like 13, I was like, what did I do when I wanted to win an Olympic gold medal? I was like, I researched Kieran's times. I put up with heaps of crap of people not believing me. I tried to emulate or beat those times for every single age group category. And then obviously you're in the open category. And, um, and then I went back to that headspace mm-hmm. in my corporate career. I was like, I've got to drop the ego. I've got to focus on that sort of hunger and desire mm. and overcome all the obstacles. Because, you know, when you're a young athlete, you're just like, I'll go, I'll run through brick walls. And mm. I had to get back to running through brick walls and not think I was already in that great position that you are towards the back end of your career. So I kind of took that desire. Then I think within a couple of years, I was really pleased with where I was at and mm. I was able to make an impact. So, yeah, well, it was could- it was letting the ego go, I think, more than anything. Yeah, because it's a really amazing, again, I have to say, perspective that you've got because a lot of athletes when they are transitioning into life after sport, the the thing that they're lacking is passion. So did you Mm. feel like you had a passion directly after sport? Did you kind of know the direction that you wanted to go and then you were able to apply all of those amazing things and that high-performance mindset into that passion? It's really funny because I, I have this interesting perspective on passion and purpose. Mm. I'm like, passion's a bit more of a hobby. <laughs> like, that's actually yeah. what I feel like passion is. Like, passion's like, I like playing the guitar. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's kind of the thing that I do outside of where purpose is something that I actually want to achieve a longer-term goal in this field. I enjoy being in that field because what actually happens with purpose, in a sense, and apply passion and purpose together it means that you're willing to overcome any obstacle in order to achieve that goal, to go through any pain or suffering to achieve that outcome. So when I look at look at our sporting career, how many injuries did you have? Mm. How many times did you get sick? Yeah. When you lost, when you had like you got kicked pretty hard in 2004, like how determined were you to come back? And then what you did in 2007 in particular was massive, you mm. know, here in Melbourne at the World Championships. Like how much pain do you go through to get that outcome? So I almost think, um, for me, like post sport, I realize it's not it's not always like passion is passion is a thing that makes you feel good each day. It's purpose is something that you're willing to go through pain and suffering to achieve an outcome that you really, really love and that you're really, really linked to. Um, and so for me, I, I kind of realized that it wasn't about feeling good about what I was doing every day, but I knew where I wanted to be and I knew what I wanted to do. And that was kind of good enough. It doesn't have to all add up on day one, um, even though you feel like you want it to because Mm. you've had such confidence and clarity for so long in your sporting career. You're trying to replicate that straight away, but you can't. Like go back to when you were swimming when you were 9 or 10. Were you thinking about winning Olympics then or you are just thinking about your Friday night carnival? Yes. That's That's what I sort of had to get back to is like which part of the journey am I on? And I don't need that level of clarity and, you know, passion then. But now like... That passion and purpose and clarity of what I'm doing has grown over time. Each year I've grinded through to get through to the, the short-term goals, which then lead you to the kind of next step in the, the, the phase. So, yeah, I, I but I had to work these things out. So, yeah, I went through that emotion, but then I had to kind of apply a different perspective on it. Yeah, I, it's a really interesting way of looking at it because I have – literally been telling myself like I don't have a passion anymore because swimming was my passion and but that slight um change of wording to purpose is a really interesting thing and what do you enjoy and you know how can you apply yourself in that way to move forward yeah to because life is is not about sitting back and feeling sorry for yourself and 
things to come to you, right? The way the world works is you've got to go out and get it. You've got to, you've got to work your backside off to establish, you know, yourself. You've got to develop your skills. But life is all about purpose. It's about actually waking up and going, you know, whether it's being, you know, a mum, like I want to wake up, I want to be the best mum I can today. This is what I'm going to do with my kids. Like, you know, going through that at home with a two-year-old and mm. even Charlene, my wife, like she's had a career the whole time and now, but she's taken this and I learn off her all the time. Like she's like, you know what, I've done career. This is my purpose now is, mm. is looking after Eddie and making sure that, you know, he gets all the support and love because he's only going to have this phase in life once and, and he needs his mom and his dad there as much as he can be. And I was like, it's such a good way of looking at it because motherhood can be and any sort of parenthood can be really exhausting mm. and monotonous and non-stimulating for you as an intellectual adult. So, you know, I really admire that perspective. And, and I think when it comes to, you know, sport and transitioning from sport, it, it is it's so difficult because you've had like a 10 out of 10 purpose mm. and then you've kind of got to start with this four or five out of 10 purpose, but you need the purpose. Whatever degree it is, you need the purpose. And if you keep giving up on the purpose too quickly, you'll keep at this low sort of vibration of purpose. It'll always feel like this three or four out of 10 because you've got to get, once you're a three or four and then you get some success, it builds on it, right? And then eventually the purpose and the, and the, I guess the um, almost the connection to what you're doing becomes so much stronger over time. And just like it did in swimming because I didn't have that at first in swimming. I remember I went through a phase in swimming where I hated it. Mm. My parents were like, you've got to do some sort of form of sport, blah, blah. And I was like, all right, I'll do it. I was only eight years old. But I, I, those memories are vivid. So you always go through ups and downs, but when you stay connected to things and the consistency of it and you commit to it, it does find its way for you in many respects. Yeah, and it's something that I just admire so much about you in the way that you were able to apply yourself so I mean, you, you've just, you were always so well known as just one of the hardest trainers going around and you've obviously been able to then go on and apply that into life after sport. How do you manage that? Well, I mean, I guess the question is, do you find that mindset to be difficult to handle at times? Because like, I know that when I'm in that mindset, it can be, not can be, it can be quite destructive for me because I'm like, I'm trying to prove myself and I'm not, I have no one really gives a shit what I'm doing, but I'm like trying to prove myself to to me and my value, my worth. Is that something that you experience or have you been able to find this like sweet spot where you're able to grind, but then have that space to go home and be with your family, be a dad, be a husband? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely getting better at knowing who I am. Like it's taken me a lot of work, I think through my thirties to, appreciate my personality um it's it's hard living with this headspace that you and i share a lot of the time because you have expectations beyond what people just like what do you think like that like mm. they can't appreciate it so they're intense kind of people and it's fine yeah <laughs> correct and you stop at nothing right like yeah. you do anything you'll put yourself through any amount of pain and i'm still like that like even i'm in a rowing group at the moment and let me show you just my my whip that i wear on my wrist <laughs> It's like last night. This is you would have been a good right? rower, dude. You're tall and yeah. you're strong. You got good cardio, good leg strength. Limbs, limbs everywhere. Limbs everywhere. But I did like four thousand, um, four times. Sorry, two thousand five hundred. And like my max heart rate during that was two hundred two. <laughs> like I got to. Like, what's wrong with me? I'm in my forties. I haven't seen like a two a two hundred plus since my twenties. I'm like. But it's the mindset, right? Yeah. Like it's like I'm in a rowing group. We started out with a 2,000. We got an eight-week program. Then we got a 2,000 race to finish with. So I'm going to make sure that I give it everything. And 
it's very much the same in terms of work ethic when it comes to work here. Like whatever it takes, I'll do. I'm prepared to do. And I and I think you can kind of learn that over time, that work ethic, or it's just built in you. And I'm not sure if it was nature or nurture. I've always worked hard, but I've also seen my parents work really hard too. And I had a huge amount of respect. Like I never saw my dad take a day off work. Saw my mum work, bring up my brother and I. And it was just like, you know, take us to training at quarter to five in the morning. Yeah, pick us up with a, you know, sandwich that's been made, wrapped in alfoil, and then take us back down to the pool, then pick us up for seven, then make sure dinner's there, then tell us to do the homework. Like the management of all of that. Mm. I thought that's just what you do, but reflecting as a parent now, I'm like, God, I hope my kids don't like swimming. Yes. <laughs> that's just so arduous, that schedule. Like, that's exhausting. So true. So, uh, and, and so I think I just naturally fell into that sort of work ethic. And, yeah, I was, I was in a very tough race. So I, I learned, you know, how to push through pain thresholds very early on in life and it was just the way it needed to be. There was no getting around that, unfortunately, being a distance athlete. I always make the joke that 1,500-metre swimmers either have a big heart or they're dumb. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so obviously both. you're not no probably obviously both. you're not dumb. So. <laughs> <laughs> like it's just remarkable what you were able to push your body through. Uh, as I've always responded to you know similar questions was like <laughs> if I could do a hundred meter freestyle really well I probably would have chosen that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Um, I'm going to tell you what my favorite memory of you was, and I'm going to ask you my question that I like to ask everybody on the podcast. It was at the 2005 Worlds, the 800 meter freestyle, and you broke the world record. And it was just before yeah. I went out onto pool deck to to swim the 50 freestyle that year. It was just such a magic race. I just mm-hmm. remember being in the marshalling area, just getting goosebumps because I just couldn't believe how well you you executed that particular race. Um, and yeah. that may not be one that people remember. That may not be a race that people remember you from. Mm. Um, what was your moment in your swimming career that you were most proud of that people may not know about? Um, it's quite funny. Like that, that, I really enjoyed that moment, to be honest, because when we spoke about before finishing second, um, I finished, I broke the world record twice previously in that race, but finished second twice to Ian. Yes. So to actually get this record... Yes. Because um, I always felt like the 8 and 15, that's my area. Don't come to my area. Yes, like, piss the off. Is yours. You can keep that. <laughs> so, you can have that and um, I have this. So from, yeah, so to get this sort of combination of, you know, I'd broken the 200 world record and all that sort of stuff, but that didn't, that wasn't my focus. So I really wanted the 8 and 15. So that was a really nice moment. I had to do it all on my own in that particular yes. race as well. So it was it was a big one. Um, there's, there's probably two, and they're both for completely different reasons. One was. Um, Winning in, in Athens because I had a partially collapsed lung and that and I was sick for many months leading up to that. So that one of the best moments in Australian sporting history. You yeah, standing on that, the blocks and pointing to your heart. Oh, I, th- I didn't know how I was going to get down off the blocks afterwards. <laughs> I remember looking down. I was like, my legs don't work. I can't actually bend my leg right now. <laughs> so I was like, what happens if I fall in the water and get disqualified? Like the stuff that goes through my head is crazy. And so. That, that was a moment, you know, in, in time for me and throughout my career that I, I feel really proud of. But the other one was, funnily enough, was probably my worst moment and your best was Worlds 2007. Mm. Was I'd, I'd been winning at that stage. Last time I lost was around April or May 1996 and fast forward to March 2007. So basically 11 years in between um, losing. And so many people were saying, oh, my God, you've got the most amazing track record. You shouldn't race the 1,500-meter freestyle. You shouldn't do it. And I was like, 
you know what, my country has selected me to race this race. I probably know, I'm not going to kid myself here, I'm probably not going to win at this meet. My preparation wasn't good at all for you know quite a few different reasons. Um, but I was really proud of the fact that I just got rid of all that noise and I was like, I don't care about a track record. I care about representing my country, even mm. if I don't do it to the extent that I know I can. And I still got myself up on the blocks and I was so depressed that week and I was getting hammered in the media. Mm. But I was really proud that I could still get up and still race, still break 15 minutes, which in itself is a quite a big feat at that particular point in time in swimming. And, and so I think for me, you know, I, I knew myself as a competitor then because I thought even if I... You know, because a lot of people probably in global sport only race when they can win. And I knew I was this athlete that had won for such a long time mm. at every level, but I was still willing to get up for the right reason and lose, really. Yeah. Um, I was trying to win, don't get me wrong, but I just wasn't <laughs> capable on that particular day. So I was pretty proud that I was able to, again, I think it's one of those moments you put the ego aside and humility is really, really important. So I was probably really proud of that too. Brilliant. What do you reckon you could do a 1,500 metres in now? Like dry start, just... Putting on the Faskins. Oh, <laughs> what do you reckon you're oh, doing it? <laughs> if, if I could go like, I don't know, like under 20 minutes like <laughs> You'd right be now, be good. Give, give me give me three, four weeks. So can I can get down to 17. But, oh. yeah, people don't understand. People go to me, oh, do you reckon you can swim close to 15 minutes now? I'm like, you don't understand how hard it is. <laughs> Like, try and hold a minute for 100, no, 15, 100 straight. Exactly right. difficult. <laughs> yes, tumble turning, uh, like come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's not like you just click into gear and you can magically swim. It takes years and years of build up of fitness. So, yeah, I reckon if I, if I got under 20 from a dry start right now, I'd be pretty thrilled. But, yeah, give, give it a few weeks. You know what it's like. The yeah. engine sort of kicks back in and the desire kicks back in. But it is My yeah, engine's no, dead. no one can ever appreciate <laughs> the pain of that race. <laughs> yeah, no, I I don't ever want to know the pain of that race. I did no, a 1K no. for time on Monday with my swim squad and I did 15.52. So. That's not bad. It's not terrible. Good. I thought I was going to do 20 yeah. minutes. So I'm like, yay. Yeah, yeah, no, that's actually all right. Thank so you. Thank you. Did, did, anybody, did, did anybody beat you? Oh, yeah. All of all of my yeah. master's crew beat me, but that's yeah. okay. I'm the I'm the slowest in the fast lane, so that's fine. Oh well, you just chomp them down one by one. one just hunt them down one by one. Exactly, it's fine. <laughs> so, one so, step yeah. at a time. Got you this week. We'll yeah. get you next week. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, I don't want to keep you any longer, but um, the last, very last question. Um, what advice? I mean, there's been so many pearls of wisdom in this uh, interview, but what is your advice for athletes who? Are retiring or thinking about retirement? I'll give two pieces of probably pretty distinct advice on that. One is it's up to you. Mm. Like, the, you know, sport in Australia or anywhere in the world can put as many programs in place. They can make you study. They can make you do things. They can provide pathways. But if you don't take ownership of it, you're going to fall into a hole. So you've got to, you've got to actually have a crack. You've got to grind at something. It's going to be hard. You've got to eat humble pie. It's not going to be easy. So. First and foremost, you take ownership of it would be the first because that's what I've noticed with a lot of athletes over time that I've, I've spoken to when they don't take ownership of it, they always end up in the same place and it's it's really hard to pull yourself out of that hole. The other aspect, and this is something that I did extremely poorly, um, was be vulnerable. Mm. Like I think um, having that sense of vulnerability going, you know what, I'm not okay I don't really know what I'm going to do. I wouldn't mind a bit of help and guidance, like get some mentoring, you know what I mean? Like get get some, I guess, direction in terms of where you want to go, like seek people out that have been through it before that have actually overcome those obstacles. You'll still have to go through your own journey and your own mm. ups and downs through that. It's not, gonna, it's not going to 
stop it from happening, but it's going to make the duration and the intensity less is, is probably the best way of articulating it. So, and you've got to be connected with yourself to have those honest conversations, which mine was kind of a very public breakdown of my marriage, which was a really difficult part of life. And I didn't go to anybody for help mm. for years. Like I was just trying to like push my, like I did a 1500 meter freestyle. Surely if I keep pushing myself through it. Just grind it out. Okay. Yeah. And it was like, and as soon as I started tapping into help and then someone said, oh, I know your issue is that, you know, you, you, lack, you, you lack the ability to be vulnerable was the exact line that came at me and I never forgot that. And I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. Like I, I can't talk about this stuff. And eventually I started talking about things and working through stuff and then everything, everything in life became better. Like mm. I became a better, better partner, a better husband now, a better father, a more compassionate individual, probably better within my leadership capabilities within the business that I run. So it was a really eye-opening experience. So if there's two pieces of advice is one, take ownership. The other two is the other piece is be vulnerable. So if you can do those two things to the best of your ability, you'll, you'll get through that, that sort of those undulating hills uh, with a little bit more ease. It's magic. So good. Thank you, Haggy. Bring the magic. I know. Bring the magic. (laughs) Oh, that was so good. Thank you so much for your time, Haggy. I just can't tell you how much I appreciate it, especially with us messing around. It's so good to chat. So good (laughs) to hear from you. Yeah, really nice. Thanks, Haggy. No worries. All right. See you, Liv. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me on today's show. Haggy is just, he's such a legend. He, for... Everything that he's gone through for him being a very busy and important man, he was so gracious in allowing us to be late <laughs> and completely stuffing up the timing of the interview. And he's he's just so supportive of the swimming community. He's so supportive of athletes in general and, you know, will absolutely go out of his way, as he always has done, um, even when he was swimming. So... I'm just so grateful for that opportunity to chat to him about his experiences because I just feel like there were so many nuggets of wisdom in that conversation and particularly that element of talking about passion versus purpose, uh, that was a real kind of standout moment for me in that conversation. But as always, if you like, please share and like, subscribe, tag, reshare, do the things. (laughs) That would be great. I really appreciate it. And if you have any ideas of other athletes, former athletes that you'd like me to talk to, make sure you head on to Instagram at allthatglitterspod to check out what's going on. I hope you have a lovely week. I'll see you then. Okay.